You're listening to the Bethel University Chapel Podcast, recorded from the Everstwar Chapel Fine Arts Center in Mishawaka, Indiana. Thanks for listening. Good morning. Two quick preliminary things before I get to what I'm here to actually tell you. One is, can you help me say happy birthday to my husband, Brent? Happy birthday. I will pay for that later. Um, Secondly, I would like to extend a personal invitation to you to join a Wednesday midweek group that I get to lead starting next Wednesday, um, and that will be a practice group on uh, Lexio Divina. It's a way of reading and listening deeply to Scripture, and I'm super excited to have this opportunity um, to, to be with you all and do that. So hopefully you can um, join us. Uh, so that's my personal invitation to you. But what I'm really here for, what I've been asked to do today, is to talk about what it might mean when Jesus says to go to Samaria. When we hear these words of Jesus from the first chapter of Acts, when Jesus says to go and preach about me, you know, baptizing in my name, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, I think our first kind of um, concept of that is that we're thinking in larger concentric circles. So Jerusalem is close to home, Judea is a little bit further out, Samaria is kind of the neighboring area, and then the ends of the earth is everywhere else, right? And that is not wrong, but in naming Samaria, Jesus wasn't just referencing a place with a certain geographical distance away from home base. He was also naming a people group. He was naming a history And more particularly, he was naming a long-standing mutual hatred between the two places and a firmly erected social barrier that said the people from one never cross over and to join the people of the other. And it's hard for us to understand all that Jesus means when he says, go to Samaria, and harder still for us to understand what it might mean for us to hear Jesus say, go to Samaria, unless we look a little bit closer into this place and to these people called the Samaritans. So we won't spend a long time here, but I do want to just walk us through a brief history and geography lesson, okay? So there's a map that shows kind of in orange, I think. There's a map, hopefully. There's a map that will come soon that shows in orange where Samaria is. There's Uh, Judea in the south, and then the rest of uh, Israel to the north. And right there, separating the two places, is this place called Samaria. It's where modern-day West Bank is, if you look at the modern-day map of the, the nation of Israel. No map. Well, sorry about that. Um... Not right now, but later you can Google it, <laughs> and you can see what I'm saying. So if, if the two parts of Israel were separated um, in this Samaria in the middle, this was because there were two tribes of Israel, centuries before Jesus, who intermarried with the local peoples and who ended up adopting some of their customs 
and created kind of their own sect of Judaism that blended a little bit with the indigenous religious practices of that area. And this area of Samaria was shunned, ridiculed, despised by the good Jews who lived in the other places who maintained a very ritual purity, did not mingle or marry outside their ethnic group, and had a very strict kind of adherence to their own understanding of following Yahweh and practicing Judaism. Now, these good Jews, which was kind of Jesus and all of his disciples and most of the people that he preached to in, his, in what we call Judea, now Israel, these good Jews did not associate with Samaritans. They were foul, dirty. They had the ability to make you unclean just by being in their presence is how they thought and understood. So they did not speak to or look at Samaritans. In fact, even though, ah, map, yay. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, so even though Samaria kind of con intersected the middle of what was called Judea at the time, good, faithful Jews would add days of travel to their trip if traveling from the north to south or south to north to go around Samaria so that they would not have to travel through it. This was a, a despised group of people. In fact, despising Samaritans was baked into Jewish religious education. And if that sounds extreme, that's what it is. There were uh, traditional prayers that men, in particular, learned to pray that basically just thanked God for all the ways that they weren't born worse off than they were, which included, thank God that I wasn't born a woman, thank God that I wasn't born a Samaritan, thank God that I wasn't born a Gentile. <laughs> so you can kind of see the hierarchy of despisedness in that list. Um, they were learning to hate the Samaritans um, for a lot of different reasons, but part of it was that they thought that they needed to separate themselves so far from the people who did it wrong in order to prove to God and themselves and whoever else how right they were doing it. And as the dominant culture and holders of the true religion in that area or to their thinking, the Jewish people held the upper hand in power dynamics, socially, economically, um, religiously. But the Samaritans also equally despised the Jews. They felt othered by them, diminished by them, and therefore were proactively, um, you know, showed animosity to the Jewish people. And so both decided to steer clear of the other and feared harm from the other, which is why they didn't intersect very often. And if you recall, um, Jesus decided on several occasions to rebuff, rebuke, and ignore these hundreds of years of prejudice and did something other Jewish rabbis would never have done, First of all, if you remember the story of what we call the Good Samaritan, um, that's an example. <clears throat> the fact that it's called the Good Samaritan 
actually belies the prejudice <laughs> that maybe good Samaritans weren't good in the first place. Oh, but you're one of them. Oh, but you're, you're a good one. How ugly is that? Jesus cast the hero of the story as the one who stopped on the journey and took care of the injured man as the villain. He cast the villain of their society as the hero. No one else was going to do that. But he went even further than that by actually going to Samaria himself. And once he got there, he did even more. So let's hear from John chapter 4. We don't have time for the whole story of this miraculous turn of events, but John chapter 4, reading from uh, the New Living Translation, starting in verse 1 and going through 14. And I think this should be on the slide as well, but if not, you can... Yes, we have it. Wonderful. Read along with me. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So because of this, he left Judea in the south and returned to Galilee in the north. And he had to go through Samaria on the way. Now let's pause here just to remember that while Samaria was in between Judea and Galilee, he certainly did not have to go through Samaria because nobody else did. There were well-established routes to go around Samaria, and Jesus decided to go through instead. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, "'Please give me a drink.'" He was alone at that time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. And she said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan and a woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If only you knew the gift God has for you, and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. But sir, she answers back, little cheeky, this well is very deep. Where would you be getting this living water? And besides, do you think that you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? Notice the assumption of Jesus' superiority because he is a Jew. How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. This is the word of God for us, the people of God, and if you know it, you can say with me, thanks be to God. So this story is so much longer and dip, deeper and richer than we have time for today. But a couple of things that Jesus teaches us about what Jesus means when Jesus says to go into Samaria and preach the good news. First of all, Jesus did it intentionally. He crossed a barrier, a boundary, 
that was not just discomforting or inconvenient, but that was taboo, that was uh, steeped in years of cultural practice and, frankly, racism. And, and kind of a religiosity of superiority and distance. And Jesus made an intentional effort to say, yeah, that's rubbish. I ignore that. I, I decline all of those labels. Thank you very much. But not only that, he went and treated those who were accustomed to being othered, this woman in particular, as an equally beloved human being, seeing and honoring her as a fellow image bearer of God. He didn't launch into why Samaritans are so backward and wrong and how they need to correct themselves. And then later on, when he brings up her own uh, history and understanding that not only is she from a despised people group, from the Jewish perspective, she was a despised individual among her own people because of her own personal history and betrayal of five husbands who no longer wanted to marry her. Most likely, she had been abused and or was barren. These are the reasons why women were serially divorced in that day. So she had been pushed to the far margins of her own society. Jesus knew all of this, <clears throat> and yet decided to relate to her on the basis of their shared humanity, a need for water. And not only that, Jesus came and offered himself in a lesser place and asked her for water. And of course, the teaching continues beyond uh, the story that we heard today, and he talks about worshiping in spirit and in truth, and then she goes off and tells her whole village about Jesus and can this be the Messiah, and then Jesus and his disciples stay overnight for several nights in that village teaching and preaching because of this conversation. And at no point, even though she asks kind of pushy questions, even though she makes some, some assumptions about Jesus, and even though she asks him a very pointed question about their religious differences, at no point does Jesus say, well now, here's where you got it wrong. And if you want to get in on what God has going on, here's what you need to come. You need to be like us, me. No. Jesus saw, heard, understood, joined in, and then began to connect the dots of where God was already working in that place. So where is our Samaria? Well, I'd like to say that it's not just one place. Some of us, in fact, may feel like we have come from a Samaria, or at least a place that others considered to be a Samaria. I'd like to say that I think a Samaria is any nearby place that is despised by our own home culture or upbringing. It's the people that we've been taught to distrust or keep our distance from, or worse, hate. It's the place that people like me avoid at all cost. It's about race. 
It's about religion. It's about language. It's about politics. It's about culture. It's about past animosity between two groups brought into the now. And our invitation from Jesus is not just to go all the way around the world to people that we've never seen or heard of before, but our invitation from Jesus is also to stay close to home and maybe cross over to the other side of town to the people that we've heard a whole lot about and find out how wrong we have been. Jesus invites us to go to these places not out of a superiority, not out of a a desire to look how good I am, that I'll even go there, but out of a deep humility, a love, and a willingness to learn, a willingness to see people not as other, but as fellow brother, sister, cousin, beautiful image bearer of the God who created all of us. My own experiences of crossing over into Samaria's have been incredibly crucial points of my own discipleship journey. And I will say that I don't think that at any point I have been asked to do as much as what Jesus did in crossing over into his Samaria. I've never been in a place to overcome that kind of boundary or barrier. But the very first experience for me was right out of college. And I was invited to, I went to, like my bio said, Mount Vernon Nazarene University. It's a little town in Ohio. And um, there were, I would say, less than generous opinions about a section of town and the townies in that section of town. They were the other side of the tracks in every way. And yet, I was invited as a recent graduate to come and join a church plant project where people moved into the neighborhood and became friends with the West Enders, the West Siders, as that area was known. And as a college graduate, recently married, and both of us attending our master's programs, Brent and I were the absolute oddballs of the neighborhood, among people who many times did not have a high school diploma or a GED, um, they would like to say we're a blue-collar or no-collar community, <laughs> and, and we didn't make sense being there. But here's the thing. I was called because I thought, you know, I had something to do and give and offer and preach, and I think, by the grace of God, hopefully there were seeds planted, and yes, indeed, I think I preached and did what God would have me to do. But I want to tell you that I don't know for certain exactly what my words did in that community, but I absolutely know what that community has done for me. I know that in that place, I was confronted with my own sense of superiority. I know that in that place, I was humbled to recognize that I thought I was going to bring God to them, that God might not already be there ready to teach me something about friendship and community, about the way these people loved and shared generously, even though I didn't make any sense to them. I was confronted by my own misconceptions of how God operates 
and how it was not my job to make my neighbors look and think and act like me, but that it was my work to join in God's work that was happening even before I got there. The people in our Samarias are not the godless heathens that we make them out to be. God is available and already at work making God's self known to everyone, everywhere. But by the goodness of God and his great creativity and joy, God invites us into that process. But it's not just for the good of those who go. It's for our good, too. I can personally witness to the fact that going to the Samarias around us, the nearby despised places, is part of our discipleship journey. In going to those places that we're not supposed to go, we grow, we learn, and we become more like the Jesus that we follow. I don't know exactly what it is that Jesus might be inviting you to do today. But I know that there is an invitation before all of us. For some who feel like you have been living in a place that others consider Samaria, maybe the very first invitation is to recognize the way that Jesus shows up in your space, the way that Jesus refused to other, refuses to other you, the way that Jesus honors you, loves you. For others of us, maybe the first step is acknowledging that there are nearby despised places around us. That we need to first acknowledge maybe there is a person or a group of people or a place that we would really not like to go to. Maybe a group of people that we think have it all wrong. Maybe a group of people that we frankly consider to be enemies. And maybe there's a point where we need to wrestle with that very real fact and just say, wow, what does it mean for me that I've considered this place and this group of people that are so nearby and yet so despised? What does it mean for me to consider that this is a people and a place that Jesus loves deeply? And how do I need to change? How does Jesus need to change? And for others, maybe this is, you've been on this journey for a while and you know, okay, the next step for me is to show up somewhere. The next step for me, I've identified the boundaries and the barriers that are between me and this other group of people or this place. And the next thing for me is to figure out how to go, how to cross over that boundary, how to get through that barrier and not allow the culture or my upbringing tell me who, and who I can and can't be with and who I can and can't love in Jesus' love. Wherever you are today, there is an invitation for you. So as we close in prayer, I would invite you to open yourself, to listen deeply and receive, and then also have courage to follow Jesus up on whatever invitation is yours today. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you confound us in all the ways that you do the thing that we do not expect, 
toward us and toward those that we fear or dislike or just plain don't understand. I ask, Lord, for my friends, brothers, and sisters in this room that whatever invitation you have before us today would be clear to them. I ask that they would receive, follow, obey, and be absolutely mind-blown by your goodness as a result. I ask this in the name and spirit of Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mikael. Thanks for listening to the Bethel University Chapel Podcast. Subscribe to the podcast and get more information at chapel.betheluniversity.edu or check us out on the iTunes store by searching for Bethel University Chapel.